Welcome to Screen Cleaning. My name is Jeff Simpson. And I'm Cole Wissinger. And we are here each and every week on BYU Radio to give you the very best in entertainment. We entertainment like to... news, entertainment reviews. Right. We just shine a big old spotlight on all that is good in the entertainment world. We don't focus on any of that negative stuff like the gossip and... You know, uh, all this... or just bad movies. We right. talk about the good stuff. We talk about the good, and even if we are talking about the bad movie, we'll probably find a way to talk about the good in those movies. We try. Yeah, and uh, we want to start out by giving you some very good news. I don't think I've seen news this good since I saw the Joker trailer starring Joaquin Phoenix just last night. Well, <laughs> no, I've seen it months ago, but. Here's the great news, folks. Cole and I not only love movies, we also love sports. Well, I love baseball. So when you combine the two, you've got just about the best news in the world. So take one of the greatest sports movies ever made, Field nah. of Dreams. Field of Dreams, Cole. Nah. It's a fact. And we, we debated when we were having our uh, Afterlife episode, we uh-huh. debated talking about Field of Dreams as a ghost movie. Oh, it's true. It's one of the best ghost movies. Okay. All right. <laughs> it's a great father and son movie. Right. Oh, uh, don't spoil anything, Cole. Not, not a great baseball movie. So anyway, there is a baseball field that was constructed on a farmer's farm, right? In Iowa. In Iowa. It, in real life, they really did this. They built it and they came. And they, that's true, Cole. And pretty soon, they're going to be rebuilding a stadium there, and people will come. Approximately 8,000 people will come. And only 8,000, which is small for a major league ballpark. Right. Because in 2020, in August of 2020, the Chicago White Sox are going to play an actual major league baseball game Versus the New York Yankees. This will count. This will be an actual real season game. And it is going to be so exciting. I can't imagine how expensive those tickets are going to be, Cole. But if I can find a way to get to Iowa, I will. I'll make it happen because I love that uh, the Black Sox team. Yeah, it's you know, kind of a shame that they're not playing the Reds to yeah. like, actually have a rematch of the 1919 World Series. But if I can find a way to go, I will be one of those many car headlights that you see way off in the distance just waiting to get to the field to watch that White Sox team play. Yeah, it's it's interesting that we get to see it happen in real life. That's going to be so exciting. I'm, I'm actually surprised they haven't done it yet. Yeah. You know? This is a great little <laughs> uh, promotional tie-in. Tickets will be very, very expensive. But yes. it'll be fun. So, Cole, what else is going on in the news that we should be talking about? Well, we've got some Marvel comic news. Normally, I revel in the unorganized DC news that keeps churning out. But this week, uh, outside of the Disney Marvel properties, we got information that Andy Serkis is on tap to direct Venom 2 that is also being co-written by Tom Hardy, the first one being a sort of fun fair for everyone that was involved, although it didn't come up to be the greatest movie ever. And then also in the Spider-Universe, the directors of Into the Spider-Verse, Lord and Miller, will be co-in charge of a new series of spider television shows produced by Sony. They say it will be like something never before seen on television. And given their track record, I'm excited for it. 
Okay, so my friend actually told me about this the other day, and I am super excited for this because I enjoy pretty much anything they put their hands on. I, I semi-enjoyed Solo, but that's... They're half of it, probably. <laughs> to be fair, they they weren't fully responsible for the final results that we saw on screen. I am so excited about this. I think it's it's great. I think it can only yield excellent results. They also brought us the Lego movie and yes. other fun things. So we'll see how the future spider things coming out of Sony will be uh, homed by these two fellows. There's also, you know, that's one part of Marvel. The rest of Marvel is, of course, owned by Disney, um, mm-hmm. along with the rest of the world. We got Thanks some for the reminder, Cole. Disney Plus news. It's always Jeff's favorite part of the day where I get to talk about the future streaming wars that will be going on in the entertainment oh. industry. Okay. Disney Plus has announced that they will offer a packaged program that we knew was coming, but we now have a price point on. You will be able to get Disney Plus, Hulu Plus, and ESPN Plus all for twelve ninety nine. Oh my goodness, Cole! Is that a good deal? It's less than Netflix <laughs> for that more is... and better stuff. Okay, and I, I guess by saying more, you basically mean that. I mean, Disney Plus is taking the bulk of of their content away anyway, right? They're taking their ball and going to their own home, and their home now is. Disney Plus and Hulu Plus as well with that Fox tie-in that they now own. And so any former Fox TV shows, they will be homed on Hulu. You'll be able to still get that. And I'm a big sports fan. I've held off on ESPN Plus up until now. Now that I can get it along with all this other Disney stuff that I'll have to be watching eventually to stay up on that Marvel story, uh, it's a nice little throw-in. I love it. All right. Well, I, you know, as much as I get worn out by all of the news of these streaming services, Disney Plus is one that I am most likely going to be signing up for because not only does it have all of the Disney movies on there or will someday, but you can download the movies. And when you take car trips and vacations, that is kind of a deal breaker for parents with young children like me. So... We have some good news for Guillermo del Toro, who just recently this week got his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Long overdue. Yeah, right? I mean, he's an Academy Award winner. He's been a huge filmmaker from Mexico for many, many years. And uh, yeah, long overdue. He's now the producer of Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, one of the many movies that we will be reviewing this week on the show But before we get to our movie reviews, we want to talk about some other scary stories inspired kind of by Guillermo del Toro's produced movie, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. And also the news this week that we got our first teaser trailer for the new Are You Afraid of the Dark coming back to Nickelodeon this October as well. We just got into a horror kind of mood, maybe a little early for the season, but we want to talk about scary stories to share from books and and anthology television when we come back on Screen Cleaning. (laughs) 
Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. That, of course, is the theme song to the television series. Inspired by a series of children's horror books. Goosebumps. Yeah. Cole, I can't tell you how important these books were to my childhood. I collected as many as I could get my hands on. And I'm talking about, like, the original artwork and everything, Cole. Oh, definitely. Those covers are iconic. Yeah, and I could just rattle off the names of a few of the first books, like Welcome to Dead House, I think, was the first one. There was Monster Blood and The Girl Who Cried Monster and Night of the Living Dummy, things like that. Always... Very creative names was something I appreciated in Goosebumps. Yeah. So what we want to talk about today on the show, since Scary Movies to Tell in the Dark is out this weekend, and we will give our review of that later on in the show, we wanted to talk about some of our favorite scary stories, not necessarily from the Alvin Schwartz collection of Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. But Jeff has been reading up on him, and he he might give us one of his favorites. Absolutely. And so why don't we fittingly start with Goosebumps? Please. I, I never really watched the TV series because I think by the time the TV series came along, I was kind of aged out of those stories See, a little bit. I, I, it warms my heart to hear that you grew up on the Goosebumps books as well because I make fun of you for being like considerably older than me most of the time <laughs> on this show. You're more in that scary stories to tell in the dark age range of kids books whereas i'm more in the goosebumps generation i certainly did watch every episode of the goosebumps tv show but oh my goodness and yet when you asked me what was the theme song i could sing it but you could not it's true (laughs) (laughs) so I, i mentioned one of these favorite scary stories of mine not necessarily because i think it's the best goosebumps story but it's one that i remember reading several times and it is the girl who cried monster And, you know, the classic story of this girl that nobody believes when she's trying to say, look, there's a a monster and he's this teacher at my elementary school. Why don't you believe me? And uh, no matter how much evidence she seems to, you know, rack up against this guy, nobody believes her. And this one is notable because it has a deliciously, uh, well, a deliciously delicious twist at the end that you don't necessarily see coming because there's a lot of misleading text leading up to the twist ending. I remember the Goosebumps books were known for their just (laughs) hokey twist endings where you think it's going one way and then all of a sudden it goes a different way. I I loved that about the Goosebumps books. Like They were some of the first books, really, that I got into reading. And when I think of classic scary stories, the way you tell it, I think of the way Goosebumps constructed theirs. Yeah. R.L. Stein. You said something the other day that just blew my mind, but it pretty much has to be true because I looked at the scheduling of the release of these books and R.L. Stein was pumping out one of these books once a month. No joke. He did not miss a month. So Cole suggested that he probably had a ghostwriter. I mean, or two, or a little three. bit of help. I, <laughs> I also have a favorite Goosebumps story, though, that I want to talk about, and it's the werewolf at Fever Swamp. 
Oh, I, before, I had this one too. Before even I was reading Goosebumps books, I was watching old black and white horror movies. Uh-huh. And so to see that kind of cross between the classic monsters that I'm used to and R.L. Stein writing about his take on one of those monsters was a really cool thing for me. It's this kid that goes, you know, out and runs into a real life werewolf. And then the big twist at the ending is he becomes a werewolf, too, and realizes the werewolves aren't so bad. He just goes out. Out and hangs out with his dog on a hunt. Hmm, interesting. So we mentioned this show earlier already, and it is Are You Afraid of the Dark? And it just occurred to me that I do have a favorite episode from Are You Afraid of the Dark? One that when I saw it, I was blown away, and I any chance I could try, I mean, any I did everything I could to try to find repeats of this. And, you know, like most everything when you grow up, it's not as impressive anymore. (laughs) Um, But my favorite episode was submitted for your approval, by the way, Cole. I will act as your Midnight Society. Was the tale of the pinball wizard. And this is one where this kid was a deaf, know, dumb, and blind kid. No, oh. no, but uh, you know, typical lazy kid loves to play video games, kind of shirks responsibilities, and uh, he's at this mall and he's at this guy's uh, store, and the guy he wants a job there, and the guy's like, no, or he wants to play this game of his, and he says no. And it's this mysterious pinball game that the store owner will not let him play. Hmm. And so the store owner says, okay, I'll let you watch my shop for me for 15 minutes while I go run an errand. So he says, okay. And he says, remember, don't play that pinball game. And of course he does. And the typical story of him getting sucked into the game and he's got to pass all these levels. And I loved it, loved it, loved it as a kid. And this is a this is a show that I could not miss because it was part of SNCC and it was part of a two hour wonderful block of programming that I could never miss every Saturday night, along with the adventures of Pete and Pete, uh, Ren and Stimpy. Sometimes it had Roundhouse. Sometimes it had all that in there. And the problem was growing up, you only had a couple of TVs and Unless you watched it live or unless you taped it. Didn't have TiVo yet. You were out of luck. Mm. And there were times when I had to go to great lengths to watch Are You Afraid of the Dark, including trying to, you know, weasel my way into a neighbor's home at, you know, nine o'clock on a Saturday night to try to watch this show. It was very important to my childhood. I was an only child, Jeff. I can't relate. So you weren't uh, you weren't partaking in uh, Are You Afraid of the Dark? Oh, no, I could. I just okay. didn't have to fight any siblings to be able to watch it. So Are You Afraid of the Dark kind of told these stories around the campfire as you picture they should be. Yeah. But I've got a television show that I watched a ton as a kid that told it more of uh, a Tales from the Crypt style hmm. where it was this one man presenting the story for you to decide if it was fact or if it's fiction, this is Jonathan Frakes' Beyond Belief, oh, Fact or Fiction. Oh, right. Yeah. This is a show that has kind of come back into the popular culture and the collective memory because of an internet meme, as usually happens nowadays. I want to play you a little bit of it. 
Do you believe in the power of a curse? Have you had your hearing tested lately? Planning a trip soon? Can you remember the tallest man you've ever seen? Do you love to go a-wandering beneath a clear blue sky? Have you noticed what big stars real estate agents have become? He would open each segment, each story, he would kind of give it a preface, asking just one of these ridiculous questions to tee it up. You've seen the meme, I'm sure. Go back and watch the show. It's a great little scary story bits yeah. TV show where it's it's short and there's five stories per episode. Uh, and I loved it growing up. You know, I've already highlighted one of the problems with a lot of these scary stories that we grew up with. And that is you can't really enjoy them anymore as an adult. But I actually stumbled upon a series on Netflix that I've I think I've watched about half of them now. It's an anthology series that is basically the kid-friendly alternative to Black Mirror, right? Which Black Mirror is kind of a modern take on the Twilight Zone where it's this new Twilight Zone we're living in of technology. Right. But not something I would want any of my kids watching and or that I feel good watching myself, exactly, particularly. Exactly, right? So there's a show. It's a It's a Canadian-British show called creeped out there is one particularly creepy segment that you've got to check out even though i've enjoyed every single one of them and it's called cat food okay and the great thing about this is it kind of combines elements of the boy who cried wolf and the creepy neighbor trope that we see come up a lot in horror right Ooh, like in disturbia or rear window right or... yeah exactly And it's this Ferris Bueller type kid, and there are actually several Ferris Bueller references throughout the episode, who, you know, just like Ferris Bueller, he pretends to be sick so he can get out of school. His dad is a teacher or some school administrator or something, and so he's kind of rifling through his desk and finds answers to all of these midterms. And it just so happens that he spies on his neighbor who's doing some creepy things, who's ordering these giant crates of cat food. Weird. But not only is she ordering giant crates of cat food, but she's an older woman who is able to easily lift up these giant crates of cat food and put them in a hidden part of her garage. She's pouring all these cans of cat food into a bathtub. And then later on in the episode, you see her getting into said bathtub. Super Weird, creepy stuff, right? And uh, I don't want to spoil anything, but it has kind of a devastating end to it. And uh, it's not to be missed. Check out Cat Food on Creeped Out on Netflix. I think I'm going to check out the whole series because this is the kind of thing that is right up my horror alley. It's I'm, I'm not kidding, Cole. As an adult, I have wanted to go back and watch the rest of them. I've watched at least five or six of them. And they're entertaining, they're creepy, and so much so that it's like, what is the point at which I can show this to my seven-year-old, right? Well, probably (laughs) when she's older than seven. (laughs) Yeah, and every episode starts out with this creepy kid character who's just got kind of this plain white mask. And uh, this character is called The Collector, going around collecting scary stories. Mm. You're going to love it, Cole. Don't miss it. So scary stories come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. I want to talk about another book. This is not kind of a series of books of scary stories, but it's 
it's fond in my memory, not for totally the content of it, but just for the location. Some places lend themselves to being creepier than others, whether it's the abandoned insane asylum or a haunted house or a carnival. Recently mm. in movies, Us, Shazam, uh, John, one of the John Wicks, they have these kind of creepy carnivals in them, even if they're not creepy movies per se, with mirror mazes. And they've all reminded me of a book I read when I was a kid called Full Tilt. It's hmm. it's a horror book, not and it's this. sure it's it's aimed for middle grade readers, probably about 200, 250 pages at max, and it takes place in a creepy carnival. And I just think that sometimes. It all has to do with where you're placing your scary story on how it can kind of engage the imagination. Because I picture kids, you know, around that time going around and, you know, saying, hey, as they pass by it, you know, walking by or on their bikes, say, and that carnival, that's that's the old abandoned, you know, haunted place or whatever. Interesting. I've got to check that out. I mean, maybe at the very least I should listen to it on audiobook. It's short and it's it's designed for kids. I haven't read it in, you know, 10 or 15 years since I was a kid, but I remember it being one of those first gateways to creepier things when yeah. I was younger. Well, before I uh, mention a couple of my adult picks, and what I mean by that is just, you know, it's meant for – it's adult fare, meant for – people of an older generation, as you have pointed out, I am Cole. Um, And since we're going to be talking about scary stories to tell in the dark later on, I have to mention one of my favorites from those series of books. And it's one that shows up every once in a while in any horror anthology or horror movie that deals especially with urban legends. It showed up in the movie Urban Legend. There we go. And uh, it's called High Beams. This is a story in which, you know, a girl is coming home from the movies, she's alone in her car, and somebody behind her starts flashing their high beams. Something Mm. you see normally when you forget to turn your lights on in the car, right? Or if there's a cop around the corner. Right. You you flash (laughs) your lights at somebody so that they know, hey, buddy, you got to turn those lights on so everybody can see you and not run into you. Right. Well... Her lights are obviously on, so it can't be that. And she ignores it because after a while, the high beams stop flashing. Well, 30 seconds or so go by and the high beams start flashing again. Hmm. And this girl starts to get a little scared. They go away. 30 seconds later, those high beams start coming longer and stronger. And she is severely freaked out by this point. So she just steps on the gas and drives as far and as fast away from this driver as she can. The only problem is every turn she makes, the driver behind her also makes. Creepy. Well, she finally gets home, jumps out of the car, and is running, screaming into the house. Call the police, call the police. The police show up. They have a little confrontation with this guy that was flashing all the high beams. And he's like, no, 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 you don't understand there was a man in the back seat of your car wielding a knife, and every time he was, he emerged from the back seat and was about to get you with his knife, I flashed my high beams at you, and every time I did that, he would stay back in the back seat. Ooh. So it turns out he was really saving her life the entire time, 
And there was this deranged lunatic that had been in her backseat the whole time. Ah, creepy Steph Cole. And that's a classic story, too. There's an episode of one of my favorite television shows, Supernatural, that tackles that idea of the car behind you flashing their high beams. It's in a lot of other stories as well. And again, there's an episode of Supernatural that tackles another trope you see in horror movies from time to time. And that's the guy with the hook for a hand. Ooh, yeah. All the way from serious horror movies like The Town That Dreaded Sundown or Candyman have a hook for a hand. Some of the more fun horrors of the 90s, like I Know What You Did Last Summer. Even the hash-slinging slasher of Spongebob has a spatula for a hand okay. instead of a hook for a hand. <laughs> and there's a scary story to tell in the dark called The, the hook. hook. Simply The Hook. Yeah, and I I love Supernatural because they get a chance to tackle all of these different stories. After what seems like a hundred seasons of the show, if there is a trope or monster or urban legend out there, Supernatural's probably probably covered it. But another theme, probably my favorite genre within the horror genre, would be this idea of man versus the unknown, or I like to say man versus the world. In that you have somebody that is on the run from this unknown entity and the numbers on the unknown entity's side increase while the numbers on the human side decrease till the point where it's really just the main character versus everybody else. Oh boy. And my favorite example of that comes in the 1978 film Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I mean, listen to this cast of characters. You've got Donald Sutherland, great, Jeff Goldblum, fantastic, Leonard Nimoy, all in the same movie? you got to be kidding me. you got to check this movie out. It's PG. It's 70s PG, so you got to be careful there. But uh, this idea that that stems from the 1950s, from the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where anybody around you could be one of these aliens that have come and have swapped places with your loved ones. They look and they sound exactly like your loved ones, but they're not really your loved ones. This idea that was very prevalent in the McCarthy era where anybody around you could be a communist. They may look just like an American citizen, but they have these communist ties that we've got to stamp out. Right, Cole? And that's the classic zombie format as well. In 1968, the birth of the zombie movie happened in a little movie that you'll get to see uh, in Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark as well. Right. Night of the Living Dead by Pittsburgh's own George A. Romero. uh, And all zombie movies since then have also tackled this idea. The last scary story thing that I want to talk about about is when the story itself becomes really important to the scare because I think that's where these stories were really born. It's a bunch of kids sitting around the campfire trying to spook each other out with stories of the escaped maniac that got out just a few miles down the road or when you're walking by the old house on the block that just everyone knows is haunted and you kind of nudge each other and dare one another to go up and go inside, even though a girl in there died 50 years ago today and she comes back every year on the anniversary to haunt those that are there. This is kind of where scary stories are born and, and where we have fun with it. And I think the piece of media that plays best with the stories aspect is The Ring. It's a terrifying PG-13 horror movie that really integrates the 
telling and passing on of the story into the plot and and really into the scares. The video itself is kind of terrifying that you're supposed to pass on. And then the kind of looming, you're going to die in seven days that goes along with it is is all just fantastic. And, you know, no spoilers for the review that's about to come up, but there were parts of scary stories to tell in the dark that made me think of The Ring. That's why I wanted to mention it again here today. Well, we've enjoyed sharing some of our favorite scary stories that ideally you would tell in the dark. And when we return, among other movies, we're going to be reviewing scary movies to tell, or sorry, we're going to be reviewing Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, which is out this weekend. That's up next on Screen Cleaning. Good song to come back with, Cole, as we get ready to talk about scary stories to tell in the dark. It's the, a recognizable song, but it's called The Hearse Song. Yeah, the the worms crawl in, the worms crawl out, uh, the worms play pinochle, something like that. You gotta Ooh. look up the lyrics. They're fun. They're lots of fun for the whole family, really. Uh, <laughs> we are joined here today by our good friend Rod Gustafson, who has been a film critic for many, many years, as well as the producer of Top of Mind here on mm. BYU Radio. Rod, Thank welcome. You. Thank you. And I had no idea that song had words, lyrics. <laughs> Gives well, me chills. Cole, you and I both saw scary movies to tell in the dark. It's still called Scary Stories. But oh, right. Yep. I keep saying scary <laughs> movies to tell in the dark. Some people might find this to be a scary movie. Cole and I were supposed to go on a date to go see it together, but I had to back out so I could play in a softball tournament. And uh, yeah, so I, I'm curious to know what you thought of scary stories to tell in the dark. But we did see it individually, which is always more interesting to right. me because then we find out what each other thought about it here on the show for you. Yes. And I loved it. I loved the scares in it. I loved all of the visuals, which you had to like if there was one thing that this movie had to deliver on, it was the visuals from the mind and imagination of Guillermo del Toro. And I think it accomplished that and it accomplished the scares. It put all of these teens in the right situation to be scared. And then it kind of fell apart story-wise, but those were the good things that I loved about it. Interesting. I also thought it was a really fun movie, especially the first half of the movie. The kids are entertaining. There are some really funny moments in it. Um, I don't – it wasn't very scary to me. Um, The scariest moments that I experienced were – Anytime the woman sitting next to me would scream at the top of her lungs, and that was what made me jump because it was like, whoa, that was really loud and right in my ear. And she jumped at some moments in the movie that maybe you weren't even supposed to jump at. But yeah, uh, I didn't think it was that scary. However, when I went home that night, I did have some scary dreams involving vampires and man-eating plants and a little bit of Harold. Which is the scariest (laughs) figure you will see in the film. And unfortunately, he is really the big first scare that you see in the movie. Harold is a scarecrow that is really just a hideous scarecrow. And I think, Cole, you hit on something important here. The visuals in this film are what sells it. And there is a reverence here from the filmmakers 
in regards to the visuals because they went to great lengths to mimic the visuals that you see in the original Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark books by an illustrator named Stephen, Stephen Gamble, Gamble, right? So it was interesting that they were so reverent with the visuals and so faithful to the visuals, and yet they weren't really as faithful when it came to the stories themselves. And uh, in the end, it doesn't really matter, but if I agree with you, Cole, it kind of falls apart toward the end, but the first half of the film, at least, is something pretty fun to behold. When the first half is really rapid-firing you through these scary stories, yeah. it kind of has momentum, and we're getting a new story each time, and that's when it's fun, and that's when it's scary. I had a quick question. I have not seen the movie, and this is all my years reviewing movies for families at parentpreviews.com, but the the reviewer at IGN Entertainment said that the the this movie was pushing the limits of a PG-13 rating for scare. I do. I want to talk about that because normally when I think of what makes the difference between a PG-13 and an R, I'm counting the swear words and I'm watching for blood and I'm watching for specific nudity or sexual situations. But this is the first movie that I've ever seen that certainly never touched any of those parts. They didn't even even use their one allotted Mm -hmm. F word that I heard. Mm -hmm. But it was much scarier than I think your average 13 or 14-year-old would be And that's what I was for. wondering because it is based on a children's series. And... and Guillermo del Toro said that they wanted to make it family-friendly. So this is Guillermo yeah. del Toro's version, version. of family-friendly. <laughs> Keep that in mind. Your mileage may vary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so it's the way that all the stories kind of – so all the stories individually – very, very terrifying, I thought, and and use those visuals and, and might be a little too scary for kids, I'll admit, but it's the kind of tying them together, using the book and having them be stories that people are reading. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed that part of it, but there were a lot of other threads they, they kind of picked up and then dropped for no reason. This is set in 1968, um, not when particularly any of the stories from the book were set or mm-hmm. when the book was written or really any reason to do that. It's backdropped by the Nixon election and by what's going on in Vietnam for no real reason story-wise that I could tell. If you if you uh, look it up online, Guillermo del Toro says he chose 1968 because that represented uh, the year when there was a loss of innocence, you know, going mm. off to Vietnam War and that is important in a child's life, you know, when this moment when you don't – there's this loss of innocence or you don't feel safe anymore. So that's why he chose that time mm-hmm. period. And that part makes sense now that I hear it. Mm-hmm. But just while I was watching the movie, they they overtly like said it with – you know, you're watching Nixon get elected into office and you're watching all sure. these other things that at the time really don't have a story structure reason to be there. So it's, yeah. it's not a perfect movie. It's not totally cohesive. But the individual scares and the stories themselves I thought are good enough to watch it and for me to enjoy for any horror hmm. fan. So it's PG-13. We want to talk about three other movies that are out now this <laughs> oh, yeah. weekend that are all PG, which is yeah. unprecedented it seems. And uh, t- at least two of them are family friendly or that would cater more toward children. And, Cole, let's start with your other film that you saw that's PG. Definitely catered towards children or maybe (laughs) kids that have grown up by now. Rod, I want your 
opinion to lead us off. You've mentioned to me before that your kids watched Dora the Explorer uh, you growing know, up. When when my kids were were growing up and they're watching these different television shows, and as an adult, some of them you grow to like. You know, I even go back into the Reading Rainbow days. I go back that far and Bill Nye and whatnot, you know, because I've got kids that span a wide age range. But Dora, oh, dear (laughs) Dora, you know, I won't say much more, but, you know, it did teach my kids not to swipe. That, that was, swiper, or, yeah, no yeah, swiping. Yeah. That, that, that was the good thing. That maps are good, and it, it teaches you Spanish as well. She looks at the screen and says, can you say, mm-hmm. you know, something in Spanish that I can't say? Sure. <laughs> um, yeah. Donde está el biblioteca? Biblioteca, yeah. yeah. Well, where, where is that library at? I know that phrase. Um, Dora the Explorer, the movie, Dora and the Lost City of Gold, kind of plays with that Enough to be interesting. So Mm. it knows that the TV show itself was really hokey when she Mm -hmm. would look at the camera and say, (laughs) can you say biblioteca? And then she would pause and wait for us to say it. And in this movie very early on, uh, she's sitting around the table with her family, dad, Michael Pena and mom, Eva Longoria. And she kind of looks at the camera and says, can you say something in Spanish. Mm-hmm. And then Michael Pena turns around and is looking for what she's looking at. Um, and it, so it, it pokes enough fun at That's the good. original Dora concept that parents won't be totally bored as maybe they were when they were watching the original show. And kids will enjoy it. It's a fun little action adventure for kids where Dora is a very good character. She's kind of innocent. She grew up in the jungle and then she is forced to take on high school in the big city. Mm. And so it's a fun little fish out of water where she's awkward, and but she's always true to herself. It's got a great message and it, it legitimately does teach you Spanish. It does not shy away for one second from the Hispanic roots that the show really was born in and I loved it. So who is it really meant for? Because you mentioned that it's for younger kids. It's based on a younger kids show except you have Dora going to high school. Yeah, and and that was a part that I was a little shaky on because I'm even a little too old to have grown up with Dora, and now I'm definitely too old to be in high school. I think it's... Yeah. And Dora has been on for so long that there's this wide range of kids that have grown up with it. Um, I think it would be good for middle schoolers that are getting ready for high school because they had Dora when they were kids and now they're getting ready for that Mm -hmm. time as well. And then they'll drag their parents to it as well. It'll be interesting to see how well that movie does because, yeah, I'm having a hard time placing who exactly that's for. The nostalgia points are a little off. It's a little late coming out. It missed kind of the Dora buzz. I think it'll still get there. Dora's been on for long enough that okay. plenty of kids have nostalgia tied to her. So if you don't want to see a movie about a character talking to the screen, you can go see a movie about a talking dog. Is that right, Yes, Rod? but the dog's lips do not move. You oh, know, There's thank two goodness. kinds of talking dog movies. <laughs> there's the dog movie where the lips are animated, and there's the dog movie where we just – the dog wishes it could talk. And that is said many times in this movie. This, uh, this is the art of racing in the rain. What a strange title for a talking dog movie. Hmm. And uh, it's a story about a race car driver who is not the dog, uh, played by uh, Milo Ventimiglia from This Is Us. And the dog is voiced by Kevin Costner. Doing a very seasoned, gruff kind of a voice that if I tried to do it, I won't be able to talk for the rest of (laughs) the segment. Um, This is a a bit of a strange movie. There's, There's some... 
pieces to it that just don't quite fit together. And when we were just talking about what age is Dora for, this one's even a little more confusing. This is definitely not a kid's movie. This is a story about uh, this guy um, who, the the race car driver, uh, he's at the beginning of the movie, he's a bachelor. He winds up picking up this dog because he's kind of lonely. Shortly after that, he gets married. His wife played by uh, Amanda Seyfried. And, uh, and the two of them have uh, have a child, and now the dog is a little disjointed because the dog's kind of been replaced by the child and mm. by the wife. But then a tragedy happens, which I won't get into too deeply, but it's a very sad tragedy. And this movie really, as I mentioned, I think for kids, it's a slow mover. If they aren't asleep, they will be crying their eyeballs out. Um, it really is much more intended for adults who absolutely adore dogs. And you really have to adore the dog because otherwise you're thinking, well, this movie really isn't about the dog. It's about this couple going through this tragedy and this poor child that's caught in the middle of it. And uh, her parents who kind of play the antagonist, the bad guys in this movie. And so all of this is going on. But then we've got Kevin Costner seeing it all through the eyes of the dog. And the script seems to have to pop in every moment here or there to remind us that the dog is the most important <laughs> character of the family. And you're thinking, why? Now, granted, I'm not a huge dog person, but it's just, it's a little bit strange that way. The other thing is, it offers the perfect screenwriter cheat where you have a voiceover announcer every moment telling you what to think. Yeah. And that bugs mm. me. <laughs> Get Rob, rid of the dog. Yeah. Would you, well, would you warn us? If they did get rid of the dog by the end, like I know some people in these dog movies, and this is by some of the makers of Marley and Me as well, um, where if they know going into it that the dog dies at the end, they're just not going to watch it. Okay, will let you me tell you, this? Oh, wow. in the first two minutes of this movie, you will have that answer oh. because it starts at the end and then flashes back to the beginning. Uh -oh. And then we have to work ourselves almost back to the end Did you just give us the, the ending, ending okay. to the movie? Well, wow. it, it has quite quickly off the top. Let's just say that it's going, all right, guys, I'm sorry. I, <laughs> this is one of those movies that makes you mad when you cry. Mm. Okay. I was mad that yep. I was crying. So yeah, in order there. to like this movie, must love dogs. Must love dogs. Another yes, dog movie, right. thankfully with no talking dogs yes. in it, right? Yeah. And by the way, this guy <laughs> is really good at racing in the rain. Hence okay. the title. Well, maybe <laughs> so go. much so that it's an art form for him? Yes. Okay. It is. Well, I've got one that is also PG, but also really not for kids. Um, if I asked you guys, would you want to know the date of your death? What would you say? Hmm. Yes. You would. Rod, what about you? Oh, I'm getting up there, Jeff. I think no. Okay. Now, what if all your loved ones knew that you were dying? Would you want to know that you were dying? Yes. You I would. would. Yeah, you I would? Have. Still yes. Yeah. Both of you are nodding yes. Well, uh, the family in this movie, The Farewell, doesn't think that uh, they are going to tell their grandmother who's just been diagnosed with terminal lung cancer that she has maybe months to live. That is the premise of this movie. They They keep it from her. And beyond that, they actually – they plan a wedding – 
as an excuse for them to all visit her one last time before she passes. <laughs> so you have this big family gathering, you know, that should be for this wedding, and really nobody is smiling at all throughout this movie. But is somebody really getting married, or is the whole wedding a, a hoax, um, a farce? I, that was never really clear to me. Okay. I, it appears as if they actually get married. It, the couple yeah. is actually dating, okay. but they're getting married much sooner than they probably would have okay. after a few months. So there's a, the, an interesting scene where the grandma is saying, well, let's tell people that they've been dating for a year so that they don't think there's like an out-of-wedlock child being born. So that was kind of a, a an amusing scene. So the setup for this movie sounds like something out of a romantic comedy, you know, especially the wedding part, right? But uh, it's really not a romantic comedy, and it's being billed as a a comedy drama, and I wouldn't even go that far. It's more of a drama with a couple of amusing moments. There's never anything in here that was ha-ha funny, right? right? The performances in this are fantastic, though, especially from Aquafina, who up until now has really just done, given us some comedic fare, right? She There's a lot of buzz around her. This was a big movie at Sundance, and it's one of those movies that is is great in that it will get you talking. Not only beyond beyond these hypotheticals that I gave you, it will really get you talking about family, about love, about loss. So for those reasons, I would highly recommend it because it gets people talking. However, I would probably never sit down and watch this movie again. Hmm. But I enjoyed it while I watched it, and I'm glad that it's it's getting the people talking. That's great. That's yeah. that's all the movies that are out this week. It's not even all of them, but it is four movies that are out this weekend to talk about. And now we want to talk about a couple movies that were out a while ago that Jeff and I have just been meaning to get around to. Huh. huh. I've, I've been, been meaning, meaning to, to watch, watch that. that. This is our new segment that we started last week by admitting uh, a couple movies that we really have been meaning to watch. And then this week we did watch them. And now we've come back to report. Last week we talked about style over substance movies. And it reminded me of a movie by Terrence Malick that I have been meaning to watch called The Tree of Life. Hmm. And I also have never seen this film. What do you think? It was long, and it was <laughs> it was kind of exactly what I expected it to be. It was very, very beautiful. Um, its style was more so than its substance, and it had a lot of – you talk about voiceover in, coming out of the mouth of a dog sort of <laughs> in Art of Racing in the Rain. Terrence Malick movies have a lot of voiceover, and this one leaned into it a lot. It was – it's a weird movie to talk about because it's a very weird movie. Um, but if you look up anything about it, that is what you're going to get. People kind of have captured what it's about. It's pretty and it's weird and it's it could be described as self-indulgent or boring if you didn't like pretentious, it. Pretentious, maybe. Uh, pretentious. But if you did like it, it's it's amazing and it's spiritual and it's beautiful and it's great. Okay. Well. I was somewhere in between. The hmm. next time I have three hours – I will try to squeeze that in, Cole. Yeah. I instead went with one that has been on my queue for a long time. In fact, I've actually tried to watch it two times before I ultimately finished it. So I figured it was time to bite the bullet and watch Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. 
And I want to say that uh, this, of course, is the the horror slash thriller film starring Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. And Joan Crawford. And Betty Davis is wonderful in this film. She's wonderfully batty in this film, so much so that she got an Oscar nomination, which was well deserved. The setup, however, for the movie of this these two aging actresses that Hollywood has kind of chewed up and spit out. It takes way too long to set up the premise of this movie, and I don't think the payoff is worth the long setup. So it's probably about 20 to 30 minutes too long, and really the the, te- the Turner Classic Movies host before the movie started said, this is a movie that usually people talk more about the behind-the-scenes stories than they do about the movie itself, and I would agree the behind-the-scenes stuff is probably a little more interesting than the movie itself. But I do like that this film started off this subgenre of horror called psycho bitty horror movies. Another name for them uh, would be hagsploitation or hag horror. And it's this idea of a formerly glamorous older woman who's become uh, mentally unbalanced and she starts terrorizing those around her. I really like that idea as the uh, exploitation as a subgenre of horror. So for that, I say thank you, whatever happened to Baby Jane. We we had Jeff admit to the movie audience last week that he has never seen The Godfather. Rod's in the studio as well. Mm-hmm. Also oh. never seen The Godfather? No, you're not going to bring this up, are This you? is a big deal because we've been talking about the <laughs> CNN movie series called The Movies, the uh-huh. six-part miniseries, and they just did their decade of the 70s. And obviously The Godfather is going to be in any discussion uh, that talks about 70s in cinema, right? Or movies. Ever. Right. <laughs> so they started off by talking about how in the 70s, Hollywood was angry. A lot of angry, dark films coming out in the 70s. And I will admit, so far, this has been my longest list of movies that I have not seen for many decade. And I wanted to give you guys an opportunity to see how well you know the movies from the 70s by giving you uh, just a few trivia questions here, as we've been doing each week on the show. It's okay, Rod. I never do very well. Cole, you're going to do well with this one because we've talked about this. Yeah. Um, This actor was interviewed. Tom Hanks was interviewed and he said, I don't know a woman who wasn't in love with this actor. Uh, And then he says, I have to admit that he is the best looking human being I have ever seen. From the 70s? Are we talking about young young Harrison Ford maybe? No. No. No, but he has been mentioned in a roundabout way on the show with Sundance. Oh. So we're talking about Robert Redford. Robert Robert Redford. Redford, Tom Hanks said he is the best-looking human being I've ever seen. (laughs) Okay, here's another great one. This African-American filmmaker said, Every black household had a poster of this martial arts movie star. Every black household had a poster of this martial arts movie star how many I mean, is it the martial arts movie star are we talking about bruce lee absolutely okay. that is correct so hmm. there was a good section of of this movie that talked about bruce lee movies all right and then here's another one 
Can you guys name any of the movies that uh, came out that really fueled this and and coined the phrase black black exploitation film? Can you name any one of those movies that could be considered a black exploitation film? I mean, my personal favorite was when James Bond did black exploitation in Live and Let Die. Okay. <laughs> Well, it wouldn't have been Shaft. That's Shaft yeah. is that is correct. Shaft, Foxy Brown, um, and there's another one here that I can't really say because of the title not being appropriate. <laughs> um, okay, I mean and there then, were a lot of I dumb movies. One. When we talked about sports movies, I did uh, the Fish That Saved Pittsburgh, and that was that's right mid seventies black exploitation as well. Well, yeah. for most of the seventies, I was still dependent on my parents for transportation. I remember seeing a lot of disaster movies, Towering Inferno. Earthquake, sure. you know that was yeah. <laughs> Next week we'll bring you the '60s, and I'll probably have an even longer list of films that I've never seen, but. I think for next week, Rod, you and I need to watch The Godfather so that we, you, you and I can do that. The Godfather, son. You could be in trouble. He at least is familiar with it enough <laughs> to quote Marlon Brando there or mimic him. Wasn't that good. <laughs> when we return, and we want to thank Rod Gustafson for being on the show. Thanks for telling us about the art, the fine art of driving in the rain. Something like that with Talking Dogs. You have to have good tires. <laughs> When we return, Cole and I are going to bring you up to speed on where the box office report is for the summer, and things may be looking good for Cole. That's up next. Each and every week on the show, during the summer anyway, we're going to bring you the summer movie box office report. Box office blockbuster scoreboard. That is right. And up until The Lion King came out, I was feeling pretty good about myself because of my placement of Aladdin on my top ten list. However, The Lion King is going to be the number one movie of the summer. As I thought it would. Yep. And uh, that could mean a nail in my scary stories coffin Um, unless, well, I don't even know if there's hope left for me anymore, Cole. Lion King will be number one overall this summer, but for the first time, it's not number one over the weekend. Hobbs and Shaw presented by Fast and Furious, came out last weekend, and that was the number one movie. Which is Fast and Furiously going to enter the top ten by Monday, I'm predicting. Went off to a $60 million opening, which was exactly what they predicted. Too often on this show, we talk about how things were disappointing or surprising. or The predictions really don't matter at all. Except when they do, um, and Hobson <laughs> Shaw hit exactly what people thought it would, and, and it'll soon be in the top ten. And it'll knock out one of the movies that you had in your top ten, which was Rocket Man, which is really my only hope and prayer of even coming close to winning, is if Cole and I both only have eight out of the ten films actually right. I'm, I'm still proud of Rocket Man. It was a bold prediction at the time to Absolutely. say it would be in the top 10. And to finish 11, which is where it looks like it will, I count as a win. It won't count, but I count. <laughs> well, that's exciting stuff. And really, so many options of movies to see. And some of them are actually good. <laughs> and uh, now we want to end the show with something that is just... Always good. 
fantastic news, and we like to end the show by doing a little panning for good. There's good in them dire hills. I mentioned Dora and the Lost City of Gold coming out this weekend, and it features a voice that you might recognize, Danny Trejo. Really? He's in that movie? He is in, uh, just for a a very limited portion, the movie Dora and the Lost City of Gold. He's also in news this week because Danny Trejo saved a baby. What? Danny, he was just driving along, a car overturned, he rushed to the rescue and and saved a small child. Oh my goodness. himself, doing his civic duty. That is awesome. Oh, my goodness. This is a guy that started his career playing the bad guy constantly because he actually was in prison. So he played that prison bad dude. Yeah. In every movie he was, he eventually like got turned around by the success he had in Hollywood as opposed to just way too often it goes the other way around where yeah. success corrupts people. Danny Trejo was given a new lease on life and he's been a fantastic dude since then, he's a restaurant owner. He's, he's and he's saving babies' lives just on a daily basis now. Apparently, <laughs> that is so awesome. And just an example of the the types of entertainment stories that we really try to highlight on the show. And you can hear this segment each and every week on Screen Cleaning, which you can find on BYU Radio every Saturday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific. Or you can download the podcast anywhere podcasts are found, where you can hear Cole Wissinger and me, Jeff Simpson, giving you the very best in entertainment each and every week on Screen Cleaning. 